Hail to him who is oldest, most powerful of all. In the darkness we worship him. He will bring the fiery light and blind his enemies as we have blinded ours. Tonight, we shall open the casket of ancient winters and release upon the earth the curse of ice that the destroying fire may come. And together, they shall cleanse the world, remaking it in a brighter, darker image. I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 3 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And welcome back to everybody who's been here for our first couple. We have more Thor for you, because that's kind of like the only thing we do, because we love it so much. Yes, and thank you for listening, and thank you for commenting. We've been overwhelmed by the uh, support of our listeners, so apparently you're enjoying it as well. Yeah, we have a really excellent community, it turns out, of our our various uh, Aesir and Vanir allies out there on the internet. If you like what we've been doing, then we would love it if you would help other people find it. Just like rating and reviewing us on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever is actually hugely helpful. So if you haven't done that, please do so. We would love that. And also, please come to our website and talk about Thor with us because we have a lot of really smart people, many of whom I'm pretty sure are way smarter than us with lots to say about Asgard and the like. Also, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, and we enjoy talking with you there as well. The internet is such a big place full of so many things. Way more than Nine Realms. Lots and lots of pictures. Yes. So uh, we're back for more Thor, of course, and this is the third arc, which also means that we're going to be finishing out the first year of Walter Simonson's run. It is incredible to think that it's taken a year to lead us here. Not that it hasn't been perfectly enjoyable and paced because it has been, but I can't imagine modern comics really taking their time to lead up the way Walter Simonson has. Yeah, I mean, the fact that page one of issue one of this run is our figure out in space forging stuff, and it's really only going to be in this arc that we're covering in this episode that we find out just what the hell is going on there. Like, that is some impressive slow burn. Emphasis on the burn! Because uh-huh. there's, there's fire and it's... Space. Fiery space. I think think we got it. Well, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But this is also the benefit of having a a stable creative team and having Walter Simonson doing the writing and the arc. You know, he can sustain this long-term storytelling that really has a satisfying payoff for the readers. Very much so. One thing we also see in this arc is uh, the book going to a different place thematically. So we had Battles in Space with Beta Ray Bill in the first arc. We had fighting a dragon in New York City with an ancient Viking in the second arc, and now we have the Fair Folk. We have the realms of fairy and the dark elves. And I do enjoy that Simonson's kind of taking us on a tour of the nine realms, like a different aspect of them with every arc. It actually reminds me a little bit of one of my current favorite comics, All New Wolverine, where each arc almost seems to have a different genre that reveals different facets of the main character. I can really see that. What I really enjoy is that his storytelling has some kind of natural highs and lows. Like, not to say that this arc is a lull, but compared to, say, the first four issues with the kind of giant space opera, this is kind of more expository and a little more human size. But I think it is a great lead up to the coming epic battle. And it really, it fills in a lot of holes and it helps us relate 
into this giant epic tale with these more human-sized elements. That's one of the things I like most about Simonson's run is, like you said, because it's a stable creative team, which is to say mostly one dude, at least for the first half, the story holds together as a single complete work really well. You can look at each arc as its own thing, but as chapters in a larger whole, everything has its place. Everything is very deliberately uh, in the position that it's in. And I think it would be a lot less impactful if everything was at a fever pitch every single issue. You know, having the contrast and the the tone of the comics really makes it hit you. Yeah, I mean, you need the X-Men playing baseball in front of the mansion. You need Thor saying he doesn't want to get a mohawk to a couple of punks. You need those <laughs> moments of, of quiet and levity and humanity amid the bombastic crack of dooms. Yes, and I found a lot of, you know, humorous moments in, in these issues. Absolutely. So I guess without further ado, let's talk about these issues. So we're going to be covering Thor number 345 to 348 here. Basically, the fairy stuff. You know, F-A-E-R-I-E, the kind with pointy ears and magic and that sort of thing. So not the kind of fairies that come out of flowers. I mean, kind of. That's the thing. Like, the fair folk that we're pulling from in this arc are partially the Norse dark elves, but even more, it seems to be the Celtic take on fairies. You know, the she, the uh, the people who will uh, seductively bring you into their kingdom and then corrupt you and turn you into one of them, or slowly torture you for a while and forget about you, or give you the greatest pleasure you've ever had and then leave you a useless wreck when you return back to main society. Like, these are these amoral tricksters that we, we hear about in so many fairy tales. And so it's a cool contrast with the more traditional Norse stuff. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, about the portrayal of the Dark Elves here, as opposed to how they're portrayed in later Thor comics or mythology. That is very interesting. Oh, there's so much to say. I have a lot to say about elves. Not as much (laughs) as I have to say about dwarves, but, you know, elves are cool too. Sure, sure. So we start out in Thor number 345 with not Thor at all. In fact, someone we've never seen before. We open on Dr. Eric Willis, who is shanghaiing his secretary, Sheila Ordway, tying her up and gagging her. Well, this is a very strange and kinky way to start a comic. Yeah, he seems like kind of a a bad guy. And as we go on, he ties her up and force feeds her a bite of a McBurger while nattering on about how great fast food is. And at this point, I thought... Weird guy doing experiments with morals and food. Is this the Beyonder? Right, because this would have been right around the time. I think this was like between Secret Wars 1 and Secret Wars 2. So the Beyonder, uh, for those who don't know the Beyonder, he's this like infinitely powerful figure who looks like a generic 80s dude and has a jerry curl and wears a white suit who is a real big deal in Marvel. Sure. And this guy, he's got kind of a jerry curl. He's got kind of wide leg pants. But it turns out this is not the Beyonder. He's force feeding her the uh, McBurger. And then all we see from outside is this giant ee, uck, uck, uck. Because apparently uh, she didn't like those fries very much at all. And when the cops who were walking by and overheard this enter, all they see is a bunch of clothes and a bunch of ropes around a chair no lady to be found, just a conveniently placed pile of dust and a innocent-looking Dr. Eric Willis nearby asking them if they want to have some fast food. So the janitor identifies the clothes as Miss Ordway's and Willis is put under arrest. What a strange way to open a Thor arc. I mean, obviously this is all going to become a big deal, but I do love how Simonson is willing to just throw you right into the middle of things, trusting that you'll be able to follow as he tells that story and he'll catch you up as you go. I like how you were talking about how the different arcs are different genres. And this is kind of like a noir arc or a thriller. You know, it's a, a man preying upon a seemingly innocent woman and tying her up in a very S&M fashion. And then it's a mystery. What happened to her? And we'll find out a little bit about that because Eric is now in jail. And one of the police officers, her name is Officer Greer, 
makes a very shady-sounding phone call saying to her mysterious person on the other end of the phone, Yes, yes, I understand. This matter is important enough to demand any sacrifice. I'll do it at once. She's referring to the fact that whatever this person's asking her is going to blow her cover. Apparently, she's undercover as a cop. And so what she does, of course, is give a bunch of fresh-baked cookies to the other cops. Okay. So that's a thing. She then meets up with Eric Willis, still carrying the cookies, saying that everyone in the station has already tasted them. Now they are ours, as soulless and obedient as I am myself, as you will be if you taste these unmortal wafers. There is no pain, I promise you, and everything will be so easy. So these are brainwashing cookies of some sort that she's using to carry out her mysterious boss's nefarious plans. This is a strange thing that's going on, but I gotta say, unmortal wafers? Like, that sounds like a Girl Scout cookie variety or something. Exactly. Are these Girl Scout cookies gone bad? Have Girl Scout cookies always controlled our minds? I mean, I think about them a lot, so they kind of do control my mind a little bit. But these would be, like, way worse. Eric, of course, refuses to eat the bad Girl Scout cookies and tosses them out the window while she's gone. Which kind of makes me wonder, like, do fair folk kids who don't want to eat their fairy broccoli, like, just, you know, sweep it under the table to uh, be eaten by the family dog and then the fairy dog loses its soul and is ensorcelled? Like, how does this work? Exactly. Is that some sort of weird, like, pet obedience training? Like, oh, you lose your soul, but now you'll sit and heal when I finally tell you to. That would be very effective. And so when the officer returns, she figures Eric's already eaten the cookies. He now indeed is a soulless thrall of whoever. He, however, has been faking. And he takes her by surprise, picking up a fallen french fry and shoving it into her mouth. That is not hygienic, but it's apparently effective because with a thwaff, she's gone and only clothes and dust remain and the keys to the cell which Eric picks up. So clearly something is up here. This nefarious-looking character has been imprisoned by even more nefarious people. We're starting to get a little bit of a picture about what's going on. And apparently in this universe, fast food kills people. And we'll learn more about why. But for now, it is funny to just be confused about the evils of fast food. So Eric flees the various clearly possessed people in New York, getting a last-minute ride from a sexy lady named Angel in a convertible, playing very relaxing music. Yeah, she picks him up from the uh, assorted citizens who are chasing him, who all have apparently been ensorcelled by this, this fairy food, these cookies or whatever. And he just feels relaxed, like he's known her for his whole life. And she takes advantage of this to ask him a question about an artifact that we will soon learn a great deal about. She gets him to tell her all about the casket of ancient winters and to kiss her, which, of course, he then ends up as a desiccated corpse as she sucks the life from him. Now, the way we talk about these comics in the podcast, we do change the order of a lot of things. We like to keep all of, for instance, the Eric Willis scenes together and then later the Thor scenes together. This is where the issue ends. And so this is a hell of a reveal, even though we're talking about it early. I really liked how Angel resembled a young Elizabeth Taylor. Except if Elizabeth Taylor's hair were these creepy tendrils that would, like, caress the face of the person she was kissing before she sucked out his soul. Maybe that's how she got Richard Burton to marry her twice. That is a distinct possibility. But, of course, the next reveal is that Angel spins around and turns into Malekith, cackling and villainous. And you may recall Malekith the Accursed from last time. He was the guy that showed up at Loki's castle and tried to kill Balder and arranged for Balder to break his vow of nonviolence to kill a lot of fire demons. Malekith is a dark elf, or at this point, the dark elf. We know that he's working for the scary cosmic figure out in space who's been forging the sword Twilight, 
we don't really know much else about him, but he dresses like a jester, he cackles maniacally a whole lot, and he is apparently entirely without any sense of morality. What I love is his overall fluidity. Like, he has no shame, he has no boundaries. He'll turn into a beautiful woman and seduce someone, you know? He will zip around as a head on, like, kind of a squiggle body. You know, he will do whatever it takes to get the job done, and he takes immense pleasure in it. That's the thing. Malekith is just smiling hugely almost every time we see him. This is a man who has found his calling. He is in the right industry, which is apparently the industry of villainy. We were talking about last time how he's like Loki without any of Loki's insecurities or limitations. He's like Loki to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. And Malekith, man, it makes me so happy that he's in modern Thor these days because what a glorious character who's been used not nearly enough. And like we talked about last time in the Thor movie that he was in, Thor the Dark World, oh, I just wanted more. I wanted more of every aspect of him. He at least needed better hair. Uh, right, yeah, I mean, that, that flowing blonde, glorious elf hair he has in the comic is pretty <laughs> wonderful. So, yeah, Eric Willis, our apparently heroic character that we still don't know much about, who's associated with something called the Casket of Ancient Winters, has now been killed by a very clear villain, so guess he wasn't such a bad guy after all, huh? Yeah, and it's interesting, all that set up to establish a hero who's unexpectedly killed. But, of course, this leads into all sorts of things that are going to be a big deal throughout this arc, because his lawyer, a Mr. Struther finds out that something's gone wrong with his client Eric. Eric had said if he didn't check in every few days, then Struther needed to do a thing. So he opens a safe to retrieve a package and tells his assistant to get a courier to take it to Willis's father. Eric, my old friend, we both hoped I would never need to open the Q file, but I think we both knew the day might come. And this is where I got really interested in what is happening, because again, this is so different from the previous issues of Thor, and it, it's like an old school mystery. It totally is. And we will follow that package to Roger Willis, the presumed father of Eric. And I love the way this page is laid out because we don't get any dialogue from Roger, from this man in his, I don't know, maybe mid-50s, very clean-cut, very gray, very grizzled-looking, as he reads the letter. And we get a couple lines from the letter in each of the small panels as Roger opens up a package in his closet, pulls out a gun and some ammunition, gets his coat, locks his door, and heads out. It's just so moody, I guess. Yeah, I like how it starts with, if you're reading this, I'm dead, and an apology for never being there for Roger, which kind of deepens the mystery of who are these characters really to each other, but also saying, you know, I know I put up a lot of barriers between us, but I also know you've grown up to be the kind of guy who will do what must be done. Yeah, so strange thing for a son to write to his father. That is going to be significant. Mm-hmm. So then, in Manhattan, we have Sigurd and Melody, a.k.a. Lorelai, on a romantic date taking a carriage ride. And to remind everyone, Sigurd Jarlson is Thor's new mortal alter ego. Melody is Lorelai, a mysterious uh, sorceress goddess's alter ego. Thor doesn't know that Melody's really a god. Lorelai definitely knows that Sigurd is. And Lorelai is reviewing her golden mead plan, which is to enslave Thor through this love potion. And I keep coming back to wishing that somehow this could develop into a real relationship. I mean, think of it. They both have similar backgrounds. They both have very flimsy alter egos. You know, they could relate to each other. Lorelai says later on that she actually prefers Midgard to Asgard, just like Thor. You know, the problem with Sif is that she didn't get his Midgard thing, like... Why can't these two crazy kids just make it work? You know, sometimes you have that. You have a relationship that works on every level except for one important one. In this case, the one important one being that Lorelai is selfish and a little bit evil. So we follow them back to her apartment where she sits with Sigurd on the couch 
putting on romantic music and snuggling against him, saying, I want to make this evening perfect for both of us. And man, this whole scene, like with her Simonson inked highlighted big hair, her sweater, her pink pants, like, okay, I've read a lot of 80s comics and a lot of 90s comics. This is 80s sexy. 90s sexy is very different. Usually clothing is very skimpy. Everything is sexualized in a pretty uh, explicit out there way. But 80s sexiness is, it's softer. It's got more, I don't know, polyester. (laughs) I definitely love how she is portrayed as so seductive and attractive while wearing, you know, slacks and a turtleneck. But still her power comes through. Yeah, and Simonson sells the hell out of that in the art. One thing I also like is that he sells that Thor is a little overwhelmed by this. Like, he's clearly at a disadvantage because Lorelai is just stringing him along. She is really controlling the pace and the mood of this whole date. Which brings me back to the remembrance that Thor is kind of at loose ends at this moment in his personal life. His Donald Blake alter ego is gone and all the friends and relationships he had with it. So he's more vulnerable to someone like Lorelai. Yeah. And so she goes into the bedroom to slip into something a little more comfortable. I love that phrase because it's never anything more comfortable. Like, lingerie is typically much less comfortable, as I understand it. I guess it depends on how it's constructed and how you feel in it. But you're right. What could be more comfortable than a turtleneck? Seriously. While she's changing, Thor calls into the Avengers mansion and gets a very matter-of-fact message of doom from Jarvis. By the eternal flame! His address, man! What was the lawyer's address? So Lorelai emerges in a negligee, and Thor says, I must see a lawyer about a will. So Thor brushes past an annoyed Lorelai, quickly turns into Thor in the hallway, of course, and makes his way to Struther. And Struther, this lawyer, apparently was supposed to deliver the package to Roger Willis, which he's done, but there was some Norse stuff in the documentation from his client, the dead Eric Willis. So he figured, okay, this is large scale. Clearly something's not okay. Clearly this is related to Norse mythology. I've heard of somebody who maybe could help out here. Yeah, I like that he doesn't waste any time calling an expert into the problem. Exactly. Call the Avengers. They're going to get Thor. And here Thor is, despite and, having had a promising date that was just going on. And Thor agrees, saying, Time is of the essence. Mankind has few enemies as deadly as this one, and none that surpass the Dark Elf in villainy. You have spoken the name of Malekith, the Accursed. And as a side note, I know technically it's pronounced accursed, but it just sounds way more badass and old-timey if you say accursed. So we're going to say accursed, because it's our damn show. Exactly. I like accursed better. And just like any issue from the first year of Simonson's Thor, it doesn't take place entirely on Midgard or Asgard or wherever. Because beyond the fields we know, a familiar, hulking figure speaks. The sheathless sword is finished. The anvil's work is done. Now shall I strike the second blow against Asgard and all her power. Doom. As the figure shatters the very anvil on which he was forging the blade with the blade itself. And something very interesting that a listener emailed us about, a listener that goes by Darth Pseudonym, is that the phrase beyond the fields we know, the phrase that introduces many of these cosmic hulking figure segments, actually comes from Lord Dunsany's The King of Elfland's Daughter, 
which, uh, according to Darth Sutanum, was in many ways the first modern fantasy novel and directly inspired the works of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. I had no idea. I just thought it was a cool phrase. But that's not surprising. I mean, Simonson is a huge mythology buff. Of course he would be familiar with stuff like this. So that's pretty awesome. I really like his Easter eggs throughout this. There was a previous issue where the title of it came from a poem called The Highwayman. So he's very well read and he's not afraid to let us know. Well done, Walter Simonson. <laughs> like, in a whole lot of ways. But meanwhile, back on Midgard, star Earth, Roger Willis is having a strange day. I think I preferred my time in Korea. There at least I knew who the good guys and the bad guys were. Because Roger Willis has been leading a relatively normal life. You know, he's a military man. Now he's retired. He's just been going about his days. But after getting this letter from his son, question mark, suddenly everything has changed. He's taking it very, very seriously, heading for Manhattan. And here, Terry Austin is inking Walter Simonson's art again, and it struck me, his inks make Simonson's art look a lot like Art Adams, which I thought was really interesting because I've always heard that Simonson was an artist who inspired Art Adams. That would make sense. And that actually makes me wonder, do you think Terry Austin ever inked Adams? Maybe that's what we're thinking of? That wouldn't surprise me at all. Because Terry Austin inked basically everybody for a long time. Like, he was such a prolific inker. Everyone who was anyone was inked by Terry Austin. Oh, I've never been inked by Terry Austin. <laughs> I guess it helps that I'm not really an artist, but still. There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> Ink me, Terry Austin. You're my only hope. <laughs> <laughs> but Roger is suddenly attacked by Malekith's goons. Quick, get some Taco Bell. Right? Fast food is the ultimate weapon. But Roger proves in some very nice panels that he's a very capable fighter, and he fights them off and jumps into a cab. And later on, he muses about all this. Thanks, Eric. I've had a swell 53 years. Would have been nice if I could have had another 20 without having to pick up your burden. And he is interested in solving the mystery of who his father was. Because apparently, Eric was not his son, despite appearing far, far younger. Eric was his father. Somehow, Eric didn't age. We're going to learn a little bit more about that as we go until we get the whole picture. But I do love this guy. I mean, just a normal dude who's been trying to just not think too much about this bizarre, non-aging father who's been incredibly cold to him throughout his entire life. And now he just can't run away from it. And I love that Roger doesn't even once complain. I love that the first time we see him in that big gridded page where he's reading the letter, he's got no dialogue. He just knows what he has to do and he's doing it. And that's going to be a theme with Roger Willis. Like he's a really steady, down to earth, not so much overly serious, but dedicated guy. He's a practical man. He has a plan. He's got military experience. He does what needs to be done. And what needs to be done in this case is to search beneath the abandoned section of the West Highway in Manhattan to find the Casket of Ancient Winters. It's this golden, it almost looks like a, a jewelry box, or it kind of reminds me of the box that the uh, Turkish Delight was in, in the BBC portrayal of the Chronicles of Narnia. Like, it's this elaborate, ornate, golden box that radiates a cold energy, and I love that we, it always has this, this radiant halo slightly around it, even though it's sealed fully shut. And I was talking about how pleased I was by this kind of human-sized arc. I love that this, you know, ancient artifact is wrapped up in a canvas bag and taped, literally taped to the bottom of an underpass. Like, it's so cloak and dagger. It's so awesome. Yeah, because when you're talking about this incredibly powerful mythical artifact, and if you've seen the first Thor movie, you've certainly seen this, then... Who would think to look there? Like, you'd expect it to be in some kind of a, a lost temple or the highest peak of a mountain in the realm of the gods. But no, it's taped under a bridge in a canvas sack. And its next destination is just as glamorous as Roger puts it in a Macy's bag, because no one will look twice at a Macy's bag. Not in New York City. It's 
pretty awesome. Just as he leaves, Malekith arrives. He's hot on his heels and says, Now shall the hunting horn be sounded tonight. The wild hunt will ride, and the casket shall at last be mine. And a single note, unheard by human ears, rings in the night air. A single note from this truly amazing, like, curly trumpet thing that he pulls out of his presumably bag of holding. It's awesome. I want one of those things. Is this a Ricola commercial? (laughs) (laughs) Next, we see Thor at Mr. Struthers, and he fills Thor in before he heads to the police. I like that Thor's actually really responsible about this whole thing. He's methodical. He's a detective himself. You know, he's going to different places, getting information, not being a hothead. This will be important later. He's the world's Norsest detective. (laughs) Anyhow, he heads to the police where the cops there feed him the evil Girl Scout cookies. Thor is rendered powerless. Or is he? Because it's totally a fake out. He was just pretending to be rendered powerless. Well, I mean, he wasn't feeling great. So that the cops would tell him Malekith's plan. Such food as you have fed me would certainly ensnare any mortal who might consume it. But gods are made of sterner stuff! And he strikes the cops unconscious. He does know that they're innocent, so he doesn't kill them or anything. He's really good with that lightning. Like, that's some impressive precision to lightning someone into unconsciousness. (laughs) Yeah, he's no havoc. (laughs) Right? But you mentioned that, of course, Thor isn't going to be felled by fairy food. Yeah, I mean, you remember last time he he ate that soup that was just out there in the middle of nowhere in the Viking village. This dude's got a strong stomach. I just feel bad for the cops. I mean, at least it wasn't donuts. That would just be insult to injury. Oh, that's true. Then you got the stereotype thing going on in addition to the, you know, being turned into a soulless thrall of the fair folk. So Thor next makes a phone call to the authorities about the enchanted mortals and vows to break their enchantment when... He, too, hears the fairy horn of the Wild Hunt. Yeah, Thor is familiar with the Wild Hunt. And anybody familiar with, you know, fairy mythology, this is a big deal. This is when all the fairy, like, warriors basically go and track down some poor dude who is probably not going to make it out in any kind of good shape. But also, again, I enjoy that in the middle of this epic happening, Thor is really worried about the police. He's worried about the little guy, and he's vowing to take care of this. That's something I enjoy. I mean, we're so used to seeing Thor, like, in the movies or wherever, as this hothead who doesn't really sweat or even think about the small stuff, but this version of Thor Odinson, he's a wise, thoughtful dude. And as that stops being the case pretty soon, thanks to some golden mead, spoiler, that contrast is going to be especially important thematically. It does. We cut back to Roger stuck in traffic in a cab on a bridge. And the cabbie says, What's all that howling? Sounds like all hell just broke loose. And it's true. A fantastic panel of thousands of hellhounds is roiling toward them. And this is Simonson doing that visual trick that I never, ever get sick of. Because the hellhounds, who are like these kind of evil-looking dog rat things, like they're coming in this giant, almost liquid stream out of the sky, descending upon this bridge, like this unstoppable elemental wave. It's so creepy and it so well conveys like the sheer number of hellhounds that must be coming toward them. Walter Simonson does magnitude so, so well, both in terms of size and in terms of number. Then the cabbie says, Holy Hannah, who's them? Let me out of here. And then Thor appears. Back, back, you scurrilous dogs of death. Your slobbering anger is as nothing compared to the wrath of the god of thunder. And then Thor turns to the dogs. Come one, come all, each of you shall I serve in turn. As you said, 
Thor's retail experience is on point. He knows how to deal with a crowd of customers. But yeah, just the, the sense of breakneck pace here is so much fun. I mean, the dogs attack, everybody's running away, Thor's smashing the hell out of them. Like, it's just, it's very much a heart-pumping action scene portrayed beautifully. Yeah, this is very much like an old-school 80s movie with an oddly mismatched couple who pull together and get the job done. It totally is. And Roger jumps right into the action. He's prepared with some steel-jacketed bullets because steel and different kinds of metal can destroy fairies. But he's soon held at spear point by the Master of Hounds riding a fearsome creature. And you'd mentioned that in this scene, as Roger's shooting all the various hounds, you like the way that the sound effects were illustrated. The sound effects, you know, unlike kind of the big letters, here they almost look like post-it notes. They're like small yellow rectangles with kapow, kapow, underlined, almost like they were made from like an old-fashioned typewriter. Yeah, and that makes sense because Roger's an old-school guy, but he's also very precise and very deliberate. And when you can have the portrayal of your sound effects illustrate something about the characterization of one of your characters, that's some expert stuff right there. It is so true true, but he proves to be very effective as he actually kills the steed that the Master of Hounds is riding and he falls to the ground and is revealed to be Malekith. Yeah, this person in this impressive dark elf armor, and I gotta say the dark elf armor in this arc is so cool. Like, it's ornate and elaborate and almost unnecessarily ornamented, but also just dark and harsh and bladed and spiky. Like, it really gets both the dark and the elf part across, and Simonson's so good at drawing stuff like that. Absolutely. And Malekith turns his hounds upon Thor, saying, How wonderful! Seize him, my hounds, and tear him limb from limb! Thus do we serve the sons of Asgard. Let Thor's end be the harbinger of the doom to come. So at this point, Thor and Roger team up. Thor worries that they will eventually be overpowered by the sheer number of the hounds coming at them, but then he notices that something seems to be holding them back, like they're afraid of something. So you mentioned earlier that metal, cold iron specifically, and things derived from it are like poison to the elves, to the fair folks, to all of the people and creatures of fairy. Guess what this bridge is made of? So Thor rips off a giant piece of the bridge and throws it at Malekith, who flees with his demon dogs. And here, Malekith has a very hilarious uh, reaction to being injured. No! Ah, my shoulder, son of hated Odin! It's a very Marsha Brady, oh my nose sort of moment. Did Marsha Brady get hit by a piece of bridge by Thor? Now Malekith can't go on that date! Oh, poor Malekith. <laughs> But yeah, I, I like Malekith because he's so he's so confident and so just gleeful. I mean, this is clearly a man who enjoys his job. He's kind of the Mr. Sinister of the Mighty Thor. Like he's just having a, a grand old time with everything he does. And it's not so much that he resents being injured, because you get the impression that he's in a lot of battles, he gets beaten up a lot, whatever, that's part of the deal. It's when he manages to be outsmarted, when one of his foes manages to think of something that he hasn't accounted for, that he becomes offended, basically. Yeah, it's almost like his feelings are hurt. You know, he's kind of petty about it. Yeah, one of the qualities I love about Malekith, what a glorious villain. What a glorious villain with, like, no redeeming qualities. He's just perfect at it. If only he had a mustache, he could twirl it all the time. Let's have him tie someone to some train tracks, you know, get Loki and his buddies from that uh, Old West issue coming right at him. Perfect. I love it. So... Thor talks to Roger, there are some brief introductions, and he recognizes Roger as the son of Eric Willis. Clearly, Thor knows who Eric Willis was. And one thing I find interesting is that we, the readers, never fully find that out. There's clearly this, this story of how Eric first got the casket of ancient winters, how that made him, you know, not age for so long, how he kept it secret for so long, the effect it had on his family, and that's all off-page. 
it just it really speaks to a larger world. Sometimes the best way to tell a story is to have some elements of it that you don't tell, where you just let the reader realize that the world's a big place and you can focus on this element of the plot, but there's always going to be more. Yeah, what I like about this arc is that it is a mystery, first finding the casket, then figuring out what the casket is. And here's a smaller mystery that's part of it that you never discover. And it, it makes it feel more organic, like a real story rather than something that was just invented to get us from plot A to plot B. Exactly. And so Thor tells Roger a bit about the casket of ancient winters because Roger doesn't know much about it. Apparently, this is one of the most dangerous objects in existence and probably at this point, the most dangerous one on Earth. So what they need now is a place where they can kind of hide out and plan their next move. And Thor has a bright idea about where that is, Melody's apartment. Exactly. Needless to say, this is all playing into Melody's plans. She wants Sigurd Jarlson, which is to say Thor, to be more and more dependent on her. However, Thor's not the only person who knows that Lorelai is on Midgard. It turns out Lorelai was hanging out at a singles bar surrounded by adoring men, and she unwisely claimed, Were I to lift a finger, he, a.k.a. Thor, would satisfy my every whim. And at that point, one of Malekith's disguised henchmen, one of the possessed slash ensorcelled mortals, made a phone call. And it's not long before Malekith shows up at Lorelai's door. But right now, Thor and Roger are there. So Lorelai welcomes them in, and of course, with her unmatched hospitality, finally gets Thor to drink the golden mead as Malekith watches. And this is real, real effective stuff. Thor is immediately overcome with a wave of love. I feel as though I've just seen you for the first time, Melody. As though your beauty only now has pierced the veil before my eyes, searing my very soul with passion. However, Thor quickly realizes that Melody is actually... An enchanted tree trunk that demands the casket of ancient winters in exchange for Melody. And I love the way this is done artistically because we have Melody reaching out almost like entreating Thor to to believe her, to hear her story. And in the next panel, it's a tree stump with sort of a face in it, in its knot holes and a couple of branches that look like arms in the exact same position. It's effectively creepy. I mean, the whole idea of changelings in fairy mythology, the idea that what you thought was your baby is really just this... A demon or fairy or inorganic item like that's kind of a horror element right there yeah i mean it's funny but it's also bizarre you know it's so interesting and it really ties into this otherworldly tale and i just i just loved it so this is in fact more manipulation by malekith the accursed because he's great at shape-shifting and illusion magic and that kind of thing and you mentioned that that element of it kind of bugged you Yes. The thing that really bothered me about this is that it isn't actually Lorelai who got to carry out her evil plan. Again, she seems to be a damsel in distress and a tool for other larger villains, which is disheartening. I just I feel like this would never have happened with the Enchantress. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, so much of Lorelai's plans are designed for her to be better than the Enchantress, to be better than the character we're going to find out is, in fact, Lorelai's older sister. Yeah, with this sort of thing, you wonder, what was Lorelai's plan? She doesn't seem to have a big overarching plan except to just kind of mess with Thor and best her sister. But this plan ends up having much further reaching repercussions. Because Thor has consumed this golden mead, he's going to go nuts to try to rescue her, thus putting this casket of ancient winters in jeopardy. But elsewhere, beyond the fields, we know... A mighty host stands to arms... And a voice as old as time cries out, Sons of Muspel, 
Daughters of Fury, Demons of the Flame, our time has come. Sound the battle cry that all who live may hear it and despair. And the land of fire explodes with... Doom. And this is the first time we see this figure full on, I believe. This is the first time we see this giant, red-skinned, almost lizard-like monstrosity with a face that seems to be made of fire. This is a figure that would be familiar to you if you've read Old Thor. For now, if you're reading this arc just by itself, if this is your first Thor... All you know is that this is one scary dude that just dwarfs everything around him. I mean, we've seen him forge a sword out of the very hearts of stars. We've seen an army rise around him that comes up to maybe his big toe. This guy is a big deal, and he's getting closer and closer to whatever it is he's trying to do. Yeah, this is quite the character introduction for someone. And again, you're just struck by how well Simonson has paced this step by step by step. But we'll go from space to England. The Cotswolds of England, a land of wooded hills and shadowed valleys, where something almost medieval still holds the countryside in thrall, and the ancient and powerful realm of fairy is hidden from the sight of man only by his own blindness. But the realm still stands, and closer than one might think. For when the time is right, a mortal may cross the boundary into that enchanted realm and be lost forever. So I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about D&D this episode because I did so much last time, but I will talk about Changeling the Dreaming and Changeling the Lost, which are done by an entirely different publisher, so it's okay. But just that feeling of creepiness that comes with the Fae, the idea that, you know, fairies aren't really Tinkerbell so much as they're these sinister forces that just do their actions at their, only at their own whims without any sort of regard for the consequences to humanity, that have their own goals that are just using a different kind of logic than human beings would ever use, that's what comes across here. That's what comes across with Malekith and Wormwood and all of the Dark Elves and the Realm of Fairy in general, and I love it. So we see Roger lurking outside a deserted castle in the tall grass, reminded of looking into an enemy base in Korea, where he got the steel plate in his head. Roger has a steel plate in his head, you say. I wonder if that might later be significant. Maybe so. I love little bits of foreshadowing. I love them so much. (laughs) But there's not much time to worry about this or Thor's weird personality shift because the Dark Elves appear. And I believe this is the first time we see Dark Elves other than Malekith himself. And they're a lot less showy. They're not surrounded by an aura of impressive blonde hair. They don't have the bright red and uh, dark black outfit. They do have some real sweet armor, though. We were describing the Master of the Hounds' armor earlier, and it's variations of that, but they look a little more skeletal, less demonic and more just like desiccated grim skeletons in armor of blue and black. I like your description of them as foppish goths. Right, I mean, you know, they're going to show you the darkness within your souls, but they're going to do it with style! So the elves are invisible to Roger, but nonetheless, he and Thor, who was holding back, take them out and steal their oil of vision to pour in Roger's eyes. Yeah, apparently the fair folk are completely invisible to mortals, which, you know, looking at some mythology, okay, yeah, that scans, I'll buy that. And the vial was broken, so there's only enough for one of them. So since Thor can kind of see them, they put it into Roger's eyes. You know, it's like low-light vision versus having no dark vision at all. Well, I like that the elves have their own, like, super visine. I wonder if Roger's eyes, the whites of his eyes are really, you know, bright and shiny now, too. I suspect they are, yeah. So Thor and the now-sighted Roger head into what are now clearly ruins. Not an impressive castle at all. One thing that interests me here is that this is actually the first time, at least according to the Marvel database and all the Googling I could do, that we've seen the realm of the Dark Elves. 
which in Norse mythology is called Svartalfheim, literally like the Dark Elves' uh, heim, which I guess means home? I don't know. I'm really bad at that at language. But that's bizarre to me because Yggdrasil, the world tree and its nine realms, like to me, that's the center of Norse mythology. And the idea that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and the original Thor creators would not go to each of those realms as soon as possible in their runs is just bizarre. Like, it's totally what I would have done. But in fact, Malekith is the first dark elf we see in Thor, and this is the first time we see Svartalfheim, which isn't even called Svartalfheim. It's just called the Realm of the Fairies. Yeah, it makes me wonder if they just didn't want to get into the complexities of Norse mythology within the Marvel Comics universe, or if they just weren't interested, or or what. But this is really interesting and really awesome. I do appreciate that Walter Simonson works in so much Norse mythology-specific stuff, though. We had a commenter on our website, and by the way, if you haven't visited our website to do the comment thing, you totally should. It's pretty great. Named Vord99, who mentioned that Jack Kirby seemed more interested in mythology in general and different adaptations of mythology than the Norse myths in particular. But Simonson, he's all about everything in the prose edit. He's trying to work in all of that that he can, even if, like now, he's just doing it in more subtle ways. So as they are going toward this castle, Roger says, How long have you known this lady we are going to save? Only a short time. Yet thoughts of Melody constantly fill my very soul. It is as if she draws me to her like a lodestone draws iron. And that is strange, for love was never like this before. And Roger, who I think should be Thor's get-a-grip friend, instantly perks up that something is up, like Thor is acting strange. I mean, me, I just kind of got stuck on the love was never like this before. Love was never like this before! I mean, it's, you know, cheesy ballad. But come on, Thor, this is just magical limerence, this is enchanted new relationship energy, this is eldritch new kitten syndrome. I mean, we get it. She's hot, you have great chemistry. But is it going to be like this a year from now? Is it going to be like this five years from now? Like, just be realistic, dude. Be magically realistic. How many villains are you going to be rescuing her from? You know, is the magic going to survive? (laughs) It's like a Mario Princess Peach situation almost. (laughs) I always thought it was interesting how Thor is always kind of tricked and seduced by the women in his life. And I feel that that's really kind of a side effect of it being a solo book rather than a team book. He doesn't necessarily have the regular characters in there that offer complex relationships. So, of course, you know, his romantic relationships are the first go to. But it also makes other side characters like Ilif and like Roger so important because they want a contrast to the godly Thor, but also, again, more emotional connection that can connect the reader to the story and the characters. Yeah, I do wish it was less gendered because, I mean, the fact is we have Lorelai, one of the few female characters in the book, who's pettily, magically, and in some ways incompetently seducing Thor and all of the more sympathetic characters like Bittery Bill, Adolf the Lost, or Roger are, are male. And that's that's a little unfortunate. I don't think it, you know, ruins the story by any means. I would just love to see a little more a little more balance in that regard, you know? I mean, if Lorelai's gonna be a villain, I'd rather she be like a really badass villain rather than someone who's doesn't really seem to know what she's doing and keeps getting kidnapped. Exactly. Uh, for me, the various characters that Thor hangs out with actually remind me a lot of the companions in Doctor Who. I mean, you mentioned the idea of characters like Roger as an audience surrogate almost, Mm -hmm, and I think mm -hmm. they work in a similar fashion. That is cool. Suddenly, water elementals pop up and attack them. So Simonson at this point has finally just given up, and now he's just putting his monsters inside waves instead of turning them into waves. And Thor battles them, saying, Back! Back, you denizens of the darkling depths! 
Uh, alliteration. I will never get sick of Thor smashing things with his hammer and using alliteration simultaneously. Like, do you think in his off time he reads through the thesaurus and like writes himself little notes like we do for our podcast? I think it's like that. I think he's got an outline that he carries around with him and he tells the monsters to hang on for a sec while he looks a thing up and they're, you know, they're, they're pretty polite. They're patient. I think he's part of a group with Spider-Man and who else is like good at quipping while fighting? You know, they're a part of a support group and maybe like an improv group where they work this out together. Hawkeye's a member of the group, but he only shows up half the time. Of course. So Thor spins his hammer to send the demons to the four corners of the earth. Now, Roger keeps telling Thor, okay, dude, we're going up against literally an entire army and we're just two people and you're acting kind of funny. Let's give it a sec. Let's get some reinforcements. It's going to work out a lot better that way. Up until this point, until Thor drank the golden mead, we've seen that he's been very methodical. He's been calling the proper authorities. He's been taking steps and gathering information. That is all gone as Thor just keeps repeating that he has to find Melody now. Oh, man, Lorelai, your plan is not making things work very well. Even for herself. So Thor smashes through the gate and starts smiting. He is fighting like a berserker. He's laying waste to both the primary Dark Elf army and the reserves of the Dark Elf army, just like killing a whole lot of Dark Elves. And Malekith is just watching, very pleased, because this is all going exactly according to plan, and you can't make an omelet without sacrificing a few hundred Dark Elves. Thor sees Malekith dangling Melody over a lake of water demons. Who themselves are chanting, The flesh! The flesh! The flesh! And Roger, the voice of reason, as usual, tries to warn him. It's an illusion. Thor has already defeated all the demons. Thor is not really thinking about these details and charges forward oblivious as Roger in the background is just dogpiled by Dark Elves. I mean, Roger's pretty good in a fight, but these are many hundreds of trained soldiers. He doesn't stand a chance. Yeah, way to back up your partner, Thor. Ah, stupid Golden Mead. And Thor's distraction indeed is not to his advantage either, because from the shadows, a hulking, black-clad, armored dark elf, Algrim the Strong, clocks him and knocks him the hell to the ground. And we were talking before about how all of his various spikes and horns probably got caught on a lot of different things. It seems really impractical. Like, you walk under a chandelier, and the next thing you know, you have to have your friends disentangle you. Kind of reminds me of uh, Strife from X-Men in that regard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, what if it was the 70s? All those beaded curtains? Forget it. You'd never get anywhere. It's a good thing it's the 80s now, yeah. And so Thor and Algrim tussle, Thor regaining his senses and Mjolnirring the heck out of Algrim. And Malekith, from the shadows pulls a lever, opening a bottomless pit below the two of them. He's clearly been willing to sacrifice his army, and even though Algrim the Strong seems to be some kind of a champion, if what it takes to take out Thor is taking out Algrim as well, no problem. And this is one of my favorite panels in this sequence. It's this long panel of them dropping into the pit, and they're all kind of black in shadow, except for different highlights of Thor's costume. It's really effective. Yeah, it reminds me a little of uh, Mignola's handling of color and shadow in Hellboy, actually, in that regard. absolutely. And with that, Malekith gives Lorelai to his assistant, Wormwood, and claims the casket from the helpless Roger, holding it aloft as its golden energy cascades over his arms. I do love the way the casket is drawn because there's always this this aura around it that just overlaps with whatever is even close to it. Like, there's just such a sense of barely contained power to the casket of ancient winters. And aside from what its name would imply, as readers, we don't even know what it does yet. Yeah, it definitely reminds me of the Indiana Jones movies. Like, it should be melting all their faces off. 
I feel like there's a lot of Indiana Jones to this arc in particular, exploring this bizarre lost civilization, getting manipulated by various folks, accidentally playing into the plans of the villains before eventually striking back and smiting them a whole lot. But Malekith can't just waste his time holding caskets aloft. He must figure out what to do with Roger. And he decides to blind him with a bolt of energy from his black half-eye. You have seen things which no mortal should have seen. And I have thought of a suitable reward. I will blind you so that your eyes will never be sullied by lesser visions than the wondrous land of fairy. And here, this just proves Chekhov's metal plate theory. If you introduce a metal plate in the first act, it must protect you from blindness in the third, as Roger kind of dips his head and is able to bounce off a lot of the magic. But not enough of it, apparently, because... Dude can't see. He stumbles blindly away, fleeing from the assembled Dark Elves, who at this point don't really care about him at all. And the Dark Elves begin their grand ritual in the Crystal Chamber. Malekith is standing in the center on a platform, holding the casket aloft and speaking to his assembled hundreds. Time to serve the Master. Hail to him who is oldest, most powerful of all. In the darkness we worship him. He will bring the fiery light and blind his enemies as we have blinded ours. Tonight, we shall open the casket of ancient winters and release upon the earth the curse of ice that the destroying fire may come. And together, they shall cleanse the world, remaking it in a brighter, darker image. So meanwhile, as this is happening, we see our fiery demon out in space towering over stacked platforms of thousands, if not millions of soldiers, and facing a portal. And as the soldiers prepare and gather and chant, so too are Malekith's dark elf soldiers themselves chanting a familiar word. Doom! 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 And this is really the first time we've seen a direct link between Midgard or Asgard and this space beyond the fields we know. I mean, we've seen Hugin and Munin fly out there, Odin's ravens, and get done smoted. But this is the first time there's ever been this moment-to-moment direct link. Whatever's happening is going to be happening really, really soon. This is where all these asides are coming together. You know, all the pieces of the puzzle are coming together, and what happens next is going to be crazy. Malekith has the casket of ancient winters above his head, crowing in triumph. All is ready! With Thorgon and the mortal blinded, our time has come. I shall unleash the full fury of my gaze and blast a passage from the realm of fairy to the realm of men above. Then shall the casket be opened, the ancient prophecies fulfilled, and the way be cleared for the master to enter into Midgard! But he is not taking into account Roger, whose regular vision has come back. Unfortunately, his fairy vision is gone. But he has deduced where Malekith must be standing and fires his last iron bullet at him to save Earth, wounding Malekith in the shoulder. Biow! Poor Malekith. He keeps getting hit in the shoulder every time. Guy's arms just can't catch a break. And in fact, Malekith and arms will be a little bit more linked because way later, years later, in Jason and Aaron's run, Malekith is actually going to rip the arm off of Thor and wear it around like a boa for quite a while. That's why Thor has kind of a metal arm these days in the comics. And that just delights me because, of course, Malekith would have that, like, gleefully macabre, sadistic sense of humor. Doesn't he know an arm for an arm leaves the whole world really bad at arm wrestling? <laughs> <laughs> So Malekith must delay his invasion of Midgard, 
Star Earth, to heal. He instructs his men to find Roger. Seek out the mortal and bring him to me alive. I want to know why he can still see, and I will teach him to regret that his aim was not truer. And again, it seems like he doesn't care so much that he's been shot as that somehow Roger has gotten around Malekith's magic. Why can he still see I was supposed to blind him? Exactly. Now, we last left Thor plunging to his presumed death along with Algrim the Strong, and that's still where he is. This is a very, very deep pit. Yes, Thor and Algrim are falling toward a pit of magma when Thor calls Mjolnir and escapes in the nick of time. Algrim falls into the lava, and you'd think this was just a one-off sort of lieutenant, uh, badass, strong dude. He's actually going to be a real big deal a little bit later, in a way that I certainly would not have expected. We'll talk about a creature named Curse in a future episode. Meanwhile, Roger has made it to the chamber where Thor fell into the pit, and he assumes that Thor is dead. If I make it out, Thor, I'll come back and wipe this place off the face of the earth. I promise you. I kind of love Roger Willis. He's an honorable, brave dude. He is. I mean, we don't really get inside his head all that much just because he's so taciturn. You know, he's not emotionally expressive in the same way that, say, Aleph the Lost or even Beta Ray Bill were. But we learn enough, and we learn enough about how much he cares about what's going on, even though he doesn't know very much about it yet, to nonetheless really be rooting for the guy. But then Thor, he comes crashing up out of the rocks. He apologizes for acting rashly due to his feelings for Melody, which means he must have some self-awareness, and Roger catches him up on what's happened. Now, Malekith has still been following Roger's mortal presence, his mortal scent, and in fact, he sees a silhouetted figure in Roger's characteristic baseball hat and jacket and strikes, but not before villain monologuing. We learn that Eric Willis, Roger's father, had stolen the casket of ancient winters from Malekith, which allowed Odin to imprison Malekith for who knows how long in black limbo, where he remained until he was freed by this hulking figure in the stars. We also learn something that will prove to be very, very important, which is that all of the ensorcelled mortals, all of the mortals who ate fairy food and became soulless thralls to Malekith and the Fae, their souls still exist. Their souls have been sent to Hela, the goddess of death, souls she did not earn, souls from people who aren't actually even dead. And Roger, or who it turns out is not Roger at all, but Thor in disguise, is not pleased. Thor's happy to have learned the secrets of the fairy food because, again, he really wants to free all these souls, and he lights up the cavern with lightning so Malekith can't escape into the shadows. Malekith shapeshifts into an armored creature. And I am still the master of my domain! (laughs) Which, of course, makes me think of Seinfeld. Thor goes into an epic rant while beating the heck out of Malekith. Only a master of evil, Malekith. For though you have taken the shape of a truly fearsome warrior, tis Thor who has the power here. Thor whom you have wronged. Crush. Thor whom you have tried to destroy. Thrum. Thor whose lady you have stolen for the sake of ransom and betrayal. Walk. And Thor who will have his vengeance. Crush. Upon the Dark Elf and all who follow him. Uh, Thor, I don't think he can hear you anymore. And this is the Thor we saw before. This is the Thor who was just fighting like a berserker, fighting like a madman against the assembled Dark Elves because he thought that Melody, in reality Lorelei, was in danger or who had been hurt. Yes, Thor took the chance to apologize to Roger for losing his head, but he's still clearly right there. The sort of prudent, noble warrior that we've seen before, he's gone. This is Thor who doesn't care about the consequences of the violence he's inflicting upon Malekith. This is Thor who just wants revenge on anyone who would 
dare threaten this woman who he's now madly in love with. Yeah, if this was an 80s cop movie, this is when the captain would be like, you're sloppy and reckless. You're out of line. Yeah. And that's Roger's role. But what do you do? I mean, when your partner is the literal god of thunder, you can tell him to quit it. But he's kind of going to do what he wants to do. And Roger doesn't necessarily know him that well. But they decide to take Malekith to Odin and Roger leads Thor to the casket and Melody. And Thor rescues Melody in grand fashion. But then Roger advances with a gun, brandishing it threateningly at the two of them. Thor goes on the defense, but Roger throws his metal gun at Melody, exposing another imposter, Malekith's manservant, Wormwood, who I must say is another redhead, which makes me wonder, does Thor equal Havoc? Oh man, Havoc from the X-Men. Yeah, he keeps getting manipulated by like every single redheaded female character that he comes across. But this means that Melody is still in peril. Sigh. But Thor destroys the roof of the fairy, bringing in the light and driving away all the fairy folk. And so Lorelei which is to say Melody in Thor's eyes, has been rescued. Thor professes his devotion to her. But Roger realizes something's kind of weird here. It's because Melody wasn't supposed to know that Sigurd is Thor. She's acting like this isn't some big reveal and nothing is amiss. But of course, Thor in his state, he doesn't realize this himself. Yeah, every time Thor's been around Melody, he's been in his Sigurd Jarlson guise, including the time that Roger was there with the two of them. Malekith forces himself to pick up Roger's gun and hurls it, destroying the casket of ancient winters. So Malekith may have lost every possible battle in this war so far, except the one that really matters, because the casket shatters, sending coruscating energy, sending this pure cold, this white frosty explosion up through the now destroyed roof of the cavern. This is everything that Odin was trying to prevent by having the casket removed from Malekith's paws. This is the reason Thor said this was the most powerful artifact on Earth, and now it's releasing all of its magic exactly where it wasn't supposed to. Damn it, Thor! You had one job! It's the Lorelei enchantment thing. That's the thing. All of this would have gone so much better if Thor was in his right mind. But he wasn't, which is exactly what Malekith was counting on. So yes, Malekith released the great evil from the casket. Uh, winter has come and our fire demon celebrates, but you mentioned another side effect of this. Right, because what this does is bring winter to all of Earth. And not just any old winter, but like the Fimble Winter. I don't know if that's exactly how you say it, but I love that word. This great winter at the end of the world that is tied pretty deeply into Ragnarok, the last battle. And so all of the Marvel comics around this time, they all had this bizarre, unseasonal winter going on in their pages. They didn't necessarily explain why, but it was a nice consistency so that if you were reading Thor, you realized just what a big deal this was. It wasn't just affecting the book you were reading. It was affecting the entire Marvel universe. I love a subtle crossover like that. Not something that's going to completely interrupt all the ongoing titles so they kind of obligatorily have to take part in it, but just a touch like that is so cool. Now elsewhere, beyond the fields we know, speaking of places that are influenced very heavily by this, this great figure and his mighty host stand before a blocked portal, waiting until... Crick, crick, crick. Sons of Muspel, our servant has completed his task. The portal is frozen. Winter has come at last to the realm of mortals. Now shall the sword, Twilight, speak that all who live may hear its voice and tremble. Let this be the third blow against the power of Asgard! 
Doom. And as the portal is shattered by the blade twilight. Into the world of men steps death incarnate. Everything that's happened in Simonson's run so far has been leading up to this moment, has been leading up to this grand figure and his grand army and his blade twilight entering, apparently, Midgard. At this time, back in Asgard, the Warriors Three, Fandral the Dashing, Hogan the Grim, and Volstagg the Voluminous, are amassing a giant army to fight the coming evil, but Odin is so worried. Order my armor be made ready. It is time for Odin to prepare himself for what must be. Because Odin has been researching, he's been sending his ravens out, he's been having Balder entreat Loki to aid him in his cause. He's been preparing ever since he learned of the demons that were chasing Beta Ray Bill's fleet back in the first story for what he now realizes is going to be the grandest conflict Asgard has ever seen. And next issue, we'll learn more about exactly what Odin's concerned about and what Asgard and Midgard have in store. However, throughout all of these issues, we've had some backup stories, almost. In Old Thor, there was a backup story called Tales of Asgard, where we'd learn a little bit about what was up in Asgard whenever, while Thor was doing whatever he was doing elsewhere. And the Balder stories have almost become that. Yes, they're interspersed instead of being at the very end, but we always have our What's Balder Up To?, and what Baldur's been up to is pretty awesome. Now, when last we left him, he was riding to lose his life in the deserts of Nornheim after having been forced to break his vow of pacifism. He was ready to die. He wanted oblivion. And that's where we find him now. He's in the vast wastes of Asgard, and he releases his horse Silverhoof to return home because he's ready to lose himself and die. Death! I, who have already died before, would gaze upon your visage once more. And from a rock above, an unseen figure says to himself that if Balder seeks death, his sword will help him along. But Balder in the desert sees a young woman in distress. She is being chased by a giant freaking sand creature. And without a thought, he picks up a stick and goes into battle, which impresses the mystery dude who is Agnar, the uh, young warrior who challenged him several issues before. You remember how he said that Volstagg telling the story of Balder to Agnar was going to be a bigger deal than it might have seemed? That's why Agnar has followed Balder out here. He is ready to finish off Balder with his own sword to avenge his father's death. But what he witnesses now is an act of incredible bravery. Balder the Brave, I mean, it's right there in the name, picking up a single stick, a branch, and fighting basically one of the graboids from Tremors? For someone who has forsaken, you know, violence and fighting, as soon as there's someone who needs his help, Balder you know, jumps into action without a thought. But he's not too happy about it. Leagues have I traveled into the endless wastes in hopes of losing myself in the arms of Hela, goddess of death, and still life calls to me and keeps me from my longed-for rest. But no other should take that final journey against their will, and I will not stand idly by to watch a young girl die before her time. And so he jams the stick into the sand devil to convince it to flee, but it kicks his ass. And Agnar realizes Baldur's going to die, and he does something that no one, not even he, expected him to do. He takes his own sword, the one he had reserved for killing Baldur, and throws it to the sand right next to Baldur's fighting arm. And I like here that Agnar has the self-awareness to say, hey, if I go out there to fight, I will be killed, but I can still help Baldur. And that's what it takes because Baldur picks up the sword, jumps up to the sand devil's face, and schlicks! 
the sand devil right in its open mouth. And the way Simonson draws the motion lines here is wonderful, because we see this sort of yellow energy following the arc of Baldur's Blade, which then explodes in this cascade of pain as it comes into contact with the mouth of the sand devil, which, sure enough, quickly turns and gets the hell out of there with an exciting farumble. So the young woman Baldur saved thanks him and takes his hand, saying that he'll be rewarded as they vanish in a whirlwind. So that's unexpected, and Agnar doesn't really know what to make of it, but he does know what to make of Baldur the Brave. Never did I think to see such deeds of prowess with my own eyes. I will not rest until I have found Baldur the Brave again and offered him my sword, not in anger, but in homage. So swears Agnar of Vanaheim. So where's Baldur on the other side of this whirlwind? Well, he's in a very strange place indeed. He's right near some giant, giant roots on a beach. He's right near an enormous loom. And the woman who's with him, he quickly recognizes as one of the Norns, one of the Norse fates, this one named Weird. These are the three women that spin, weave, and cut the very threads of fate itself that create the tapestry that is fate, that is the life and death of every living being, of every eventuality or possibility. It doesn't really get much more divine than the Norns. So you're saying they're kind of a big deal. They're kind of a big deal. So they show him the various threads of life, including Loki's, which alerts him that he did not actually kill Loki, which was kind of a cool moment. And they show him his own, which is the one pure white thread. And they offer him the opportunity to break it, ending his life, saying, But do not hesitate. Life calls to life. And if you delay but a moment, you will never find the strength to end it. But Balder does hesitate, and the thread pulls him toward a great tapestry of life where he sees everything, women, children, warriors, in this ginormous cosmic, it almost looks like a map, you know, with planets and everything. It's everything. Yeah, and a single panel gets across such a sense of scale, and Balder's pulled into the tapestry. But what do I see before me? Every time I pull the white threads, the beings within the tapestry move for every action I take. I see the spreading consequences, the lives I have saved, the lives I have not. And Balder rips his thread from the tapestry, only to see it and the fates of the people he has touched unravel. And then he sees a darkness in front of him. That darkness is not just a formless shadow. That darkness is a familiar silhouette. That demonic figure from the forge, that demonic figure now entering Midgard, it all comes together as we see the white threads, the tangles falling from the tapestry itself, as we see human bodies, metaphorical ones presumably, but still falling with them, and Balder realizes if he doesn't find a way to join these threads together, it's all over. If he lets himself die, the very world itself, Yggdrasil itself, the nine realms themselves may end. And he joins the ends of the thread just in time, and then they become the reins to his horse as he finds himself galloping toward Asgard, fully recovered, full of purpose. He spots Agnar and swings him up behind him. On, Silverhoof! Gallop for home! So this is apparently, you know, the vision quest that Balder needed to kind of put his fractured psyche behind him to be able to reconcile his past with his future. And he is now renewed and ready to fight the great evil. And the visual symbolism we have here in the very last panel of this page, we see that tangled white thread, the way it's been drawn as Balder's been falling through space behind him that then resolves into a pure, perfectly straight line the horizon itself as he rides forward to the right side of the panel. It's a glorious comic book metaphor. 
And again, I love how even though this arc is a little bit slower and perhaps a little bit more human sized, all the pieces are just sliding into place with this perfect click, you know, setting us up for the great battle ahead of us. And we're going to get to that great battle next time. But for now, we would be remiss if we ignored the recognitions of merit, where we discuss the best of a number of things within these four issues that we've covered. Elizabeth, would you like to start us out with the Crack-A-Doom Award? Yes, I have selected the Fwath from issue 345, which is, of course, the sound of an ensorcelled mortal eating a french fry and disintegrating. So whenever you have that situation happen in your day-to-day, I'd imagine it happens a lot for most of us, that's what it should sound like. So this is funny, but I also like the resourcefulness of Eric and the surprise. You know, he uses the tool at hand, which is a french fry, to escape. So in this case, our best sound effect is not only the sound effect itself, but the circumstances surrounding it. Exactly. Next up, Miles. We have Hell's Haberdashery. So this is a hard one because in this arc, we don't have a lot of actual Asgardian or otherwise hats. So I opened it up a little bit because it's our podcast and we can do whatever we want. And in this case, let's talk about helmets. So we have a few. We have the Master of the Hunt's dog meets fire demon masked helmet that Malekith wears when he's in his Master of the Hunt guise on the bridge. We also have the generic Dark Elf skeletal helmets, but my favorite is Malekith's armored war form that he turns into when he fights Thor for the last time. It's demonic and red with exaggerated horns and blades all over it. It looks like a skeleton from hell. It's a nice progression from all the Dark Elf stuff we've seen before to sort of the ultimate Dark Elf warrior. Yeah, it's very impressive and visually stunning. Next, we have our Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award for the worthiest non-character within these issues. I selected from issue 346 the melody that is actually an enchanted tree trunk. Not only is this funny and weird and very fairy tale like but this block of wood actually got Thor to drink the golden mead, so it's very effective. Yeah, Lorelai had been trying this entire time, and it took the changeling tree stump to actually do so. Well done, changeling tree stump. She's outdone by a block of wood. Oh, do you ever feel kind of bad for Lorelai? I do. I mean, what's next? Like, Pinocchio is going to come and steal her boyfriend? Now that I would see. <laughs> Finally, we come upon the most metal moment. Oh, man. So the A-plot itself, I mean, I really enjoy the the Dark Elf fairy arc. It's a lot of fun. But we don't have those grand events that we've seen in the saga of the last Viking or in Beta Ray Bill and Thor teaming up against the fire demons. However, if we're looking at the Balder backup story, now that gives us a wonderful, wonderful candidate, namely the one we talked about right at the end of our description of the story. As Balder falls through fate itself, ripping through the tapestry that is all life and realizing just how many fall with him, the demonic shadow below waiting to burn and consume the entire tapestry itself, grabbing and tying together the strands just in time to reveal them as the reins of the horse that's already galloping toward Balder's grand destiny. There's just so much consequence to this. There's so much vastness in this amazing symbolism. I mean, none of this really, really happens, but that almost makes it more intense because to Balder, it's realer than reality. To Balder, this is the entire meaning of his life, the entire purpose and context of his sorrow and his pain and his suffering given form and given a glorious divine purpose at the end. This is some psychedelic 14-minute-long song prog metal going on right here. It's a hero redeemed. It's not through battle, but through wisdom. It's clarity of purpose from the knowledge of the importance of all things, including Balder himself. And to have had such buildup over the last dozen issues at this point, and to finally get to this point, it's just so cathartic. It's so satisfying. It's so just existentially inspiring, you know? 
Yeah, this isn't just a song. This could be a whole metal album, and I challenge any awesome metal bands out there to please make an album about this moment. The cycle of Baldur the Brave, make it so. I'm a great big fan of this idea. And that's what we have for you today. But next time, in Thor number 349 through 351, a tale is told of the dawning of the world, and doom comes to Midgard. The Brothers of Odin, the Charge of the Anhariar, the return of Sif and Beta Ray Bill. This has been, and shall ever be, The, the Lightning, Lightning and, and the, the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then... Fight on, brave warriors. For valor. For glory. For Asgard! For Asgard!